come with really good news about next Lord's Day. The quality of this pulpit will go up exponentially because I will be out of town next Sunday. And so you'll have the A team on the field next Sunday. Pray for me. I'll be in Alabama preaching several times at a conference, and so you can pray for my, my stamina. We're very thankful for our fellow pastors who you'll be hearing from next Lord's Day. Last Sunday, we examined the saga of the Gibeonites, those Canaanites who by their deception persuaded Joshua and all Israel to enter into a covenant of peace with them. And I hope you have your Bible open where you can look back across the page at Joshua chapter 9 because there in Joshua chapter 9 verse 15, we saw that Joshua made a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites to let them live even though they deceived Israel. Gibeon was at that point to become a permanent servant class in Israel. Those who would chop and fetch wood and get water for the tabernacle services of sacrifice. Perhaps they thought that making an alliance with Israel would be received favorably by the surrounding Canaanites. Not exactly. We'll look tonight and see what the world does when people leave them and join up with the people of God. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. Our Father, the truths that we will see in your word tonight are glorious, supernatural, giving you praise. Lord, we pray that you would peel away all the scales from our eyes, remove all that which would distract us, instruct us now, and show us your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to walk you through this narrative tonight and show you sides of our glorious God that are foreign to you. And I want to build to a climax as the biblical narrative itself does. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 10, and you notice how the saga begins. It begins with the confederacy against Gibeon. Again, you remember from our time in this word last Sunday night that Gibeon, that nation who came and made a covenant, even though it was a deceptive covenant, Israel recognized it was binding because they took an oath. And our narrative tonight begins in verses 3 through 5. Look there with the kings of five nations plotting together. And you see that in verse 3 where Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, gathers four other Canaanite kings together. Now the people who we're reading about tonight, and I, I have to keep reminding you this, are real people. This is a historic narrative. <coughs> real wives and families, real addresses. They ate three meals a day. They're flesh and blood people. This isn't a fairy tale or a myth. What you're reading in Joshua 10 is history. This is a narrative about real people in time who, with people who had real eternal destinies. And when these five kings get together, notice what they're doing. They're plotting together against God's people. As this confederation of five nations assemble, you look at the narrative in verse 3 through 5, and you probably swallow real hard, and you think, boy, Israel better get ready. They better buckle on their chin strap because you've got five kings, five nations that are going to come against them. Now quickly interpose a thought in your mind. God is never frightened. He does not have the emotion of fright or fear. When the whole world, when whole nations align themselves and say, let's work together against God's people, God never trembles. For those of you who are conspiracy theorists, and you know who you are, 
and tell me, well, Carl, I've, I've heard about this conspiracy. Let me tell it to you in that conspiracy. Scripture never tries to hide anything about conspiracies. We're looking at one right here in our text. Scripture says, sure, there's a, there's a grand conspiracy. The leaders of the pagan nation are conspiring against God and his people. In fact, keep one finger here, and this will inform us. Look at Psalm 2, just to be reminded. In Psalm 2, the greatest discussion about conspiracies in all the Bible. It's okay to think and understand that there are conspiracies. The only thing that's not okay is to somehow grow fearful because of that. In Psalm 2, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people, here it comes, plot. It's another word for conspiracy. Plot, a vain thing. Vain, meaning it won't succeed, it'll fail. And so let me help you sleep well tonight. All those conspiracies that you're worried about from that news channel or quasi-news channel that you're watching, you're thinking, how can I sleep tonight? There are so many conspiracies, and whether it's against the nation and the church or whatever. Look at the key word, vain. It will fail. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And it should never surprise you when you see the leaders of pagan nations, including ours, say, Let's figure out a way to throw off the law of God. Whether it be the enactment of something as egregious as homosexual marriage or the murder of infants in the womb, that's the nation and our legislators gathering together and saying, let's shake our fist at God. He has recorded in his word his will, and so let's shake our fist at God and bring down his standards. What is God's response when the rulers of the earth conspire together? Does he ever say, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was a little strict. You guys have a point here. Or does he say, I'm fearful. I think you guys are a little too much for me. Look at Psalm 2, verse 4. And remember this, every single time somebody comes to you with a conspiracy and tries to get you to worry. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I'd love to spend a couple of hours on this principle tonight. To never be fearful. Understanding always God's power to withhold and restrain evil when it is put together by even coalitions of the wicked. When you see evil men multiplying and say, what's going to become of us in the church? God laughs at his enemies. He mocks them. For they think their power is much greater than his is. But remember, he's the creator and they are but creatures. And what do you think the Lord did here? Look at our text in Joshua 10. What do you think the Lord did here when five whole nations gathered together to oppose his anointed people, Israel? Do you think the sovereign God said, wow, the odds aren't looking good for me? Do you know what's really going through the mind of God? I actually can tell you. He's thinking, well, instead of having to defeat five kings one at a time, <clears throat> I'm going to help Joshua conquer them all at once. It'll just mean faster work for Joshua as he cleans out the land of the Canaanites. Notice who the ringleader is when we see this confederacy against Gibeon. Look at verse 1 and also in verse 3 and 4. It's this man named Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem. He's the organizer. He's the one who wants to gather these kings of four other nations and go fight against Gibeon. He's the initiator, and let me tell you a geographic region why. He's the initiator because his kingdom is only six miles from Gibeon. 
and he recognized, I'm, I'm just a decent walk away from the armies of Israel. And now that Gibeon has gone over to the other side, now that they've, they've thrown in their lots with Israel, I'll be next to be invaded. His name, Adonai Zedek, if you think it sounds vaguely familiar, it means Lord of Righteousness, sort of like Melchizedek, which means King of Righteousness. But Adonai Zedek's name might be the most ill-fitting of any person in Scripture, for he is no Lord of Righteousness. Now, what are the motivations he has to form this alliance, to recruit four other kings who he would normally hold at arm's length? What are his motivations to form this alliance and join them together and bring their armies to come against Gibeon and Israel? Well, the first motivation is simply fear. Look at verse 2 in our text. We read, they, that is the enemies of God, they feared Gibeon because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men are mighty. So Adonai Zedek says, I need help. I need to form an alliance. My first motivation is these Gibeonites, they're mighty men. You know what mighty men means in scripture. Think of David and his mighty men. These are, these are accomplished warriors. And so Adonai Zedek is saying, I'm afraid of them. And so we need to build an alliance. His first motivation for getting these five nations together is fear. The second motivation is because Gibeon has gone over. They've crossed the divide. Look at verse 1. They've sided with Israel. And so verse 4, Adonai Zedek says to the other kings, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. The second motive why Adonai Zedek wants to attack the Gibeonites is because they now are in alliance with the nation of Israel. This enrages the Canaanites. They view the Gibeonites as traitors and deserters. Now listen to the brief application. If you made a covenant with the lesser Joshua, the pagan nations will attack you. If you make a covenant with the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, the pagan nations will attack you. Did you hear that? In our context today, in 2024, if you make a covenant with the greater Joshua, the world will always hate you and they will lose no time in attacking you. Now, does this surprise anyone in this room? Does anyone say, oh no, I, 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 Carl, I think the world will applaud me if I make a covenant with the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll congratulate me. They'll say, what a wise man you are. No, the world always, and that's not a hyperbole, the world always hates the man in covenant with Jesus Christ. This is something very sobering that believers desperately need to understand as they enter into covenant with Christ. I've told people before in evangelistic settings, let me tell you what's going to happen to you if you repent and believe the gospel. If you turn to Christ in faith, your old friends are going to hate you now. No, Carl, they'll still love me. No, they will hate you. Because the world hates righteousness, hates those that are in covenant with Christ. Look at what Jesus says. Keep one finger here and look at Jesus' words in John 15. I want you to see it with your own eyes and not just hear it. I want you to have this word come through all the possible media you can, hearing it, seeing it, because there are still believers that think the world should applaud us for being in covenant with Christ. In John 15, this is the greater Joshua speaking here. In John 15, verse 17, Jesus says to his disciples, 
If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It should never be a surprise to the believer when they experience the the enmity, the vitriol of the world. This is an ancient proposition. In fact, let me tell you how old this is. What we see happening here in Joshua 10, how the world turns on the Gibeonites the minute they're in covenant with the lesser Joshua. This happens 1,400 years before the incarnation of Christ. And so this principle is at least 3,400 years old. It's actually much older than that because we see it in the first death when Cain kills Abel. This has always happened. It will always happen until Jesus returns. The world will always hate the believer. What happens to the Gibeonites here? The minute they make an alliance, a covenant of peace with the lesser Joshua, the world turns on them and is ready to attack. The enemies of the Lord will never just peacefully leave alone those who are joined to the Lord by covenant. Now notice what the Gibeonites do. Here's where the interest begins to rise in our text. They make a cry for help when they're besieged and surrounded. Look carefully at their cry in verse 6 because it has all kinds of principles for us. We read in verse 6, The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Now, don't you find it fascinating that the Gibeonites think that Joshua and Israel will be interested in saving them after they just deceived Joshua and Israel? There's nothing in the covenant. Look back across the page at Joshua 9, verse 15. I want you to read the the terms of the covenant. Look at the letter of the law. When you look back to Joshua 9, 15, there's nothing in that covenant saying that Israel would protect them from the swords of their fellow Canaanites, only that Israel itself wouldn't harm them. But the Gibeonites used this argument. Don't abandon your servants, because you remember, they are now the servants of Israel. Now note something profound. The Gibeonites at this point don't repudiate their alliance with Israel and apologize to Adonai Zedek and say, what were we thinking? We're Canaanites. We don't have anything in common with Israel. We'll cut off that alliance real quick. We're so sorry. Do they look to their own strength and resources? Look at verse 6. We don't hear them sending a message to Joshua saying, we're filled with mighty men. And by the way, that's how the rest of the nations around them assess them, that they're filled with mighty men. They don't say, we can handle it on our own. No. They don't break the alliance with Israel, nor do they rely on their own resources. They call on the name of the one whose name means Jehovah is deliverance. Jehovah is salvation. They call on Joshua. Now let me make a quick application to us. Some of you don't feel like you deserve to call on the greater Joshua. You feel undeserving of his aid. You know what you deserve, death and destruction. But don't be paralyzed. Don't try to go it alone or go on your own resources. Learn from these Gibeonites. They pleaded their covenant relationship with the lesser Joshua. 
we should plead and reason the same way. We should plead our covenant relationship with the greater Joshua and say, Lord, I'm weak. I have no resources. You're my deliverer. You're my salvation. Notice what we read about the coming of their deliverer. So look where we are in your scorecard. The Gibeonites have called on Joshua to come and help. So what's what their deliverer does? Look at verses 6 through 10. Joshua doesn't send a messenger to the hard-pressed Gibeonites telling them, well, you're going to have to fight your own battles. Nor does he give the excuse that his hands are full and he doesn't have time to intervene on their behalf. Nor does he raise an objection against the hard journey which such an undertaking would involve. He doesn't do any of those things. That would be to mock those who are looking for deliverance from him. Instead, he responds promptly and readily to their request. First of all, notice how he comes. He comes with divine assurance. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, speaking of the five nations, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now I want you to stare at verse 8. And the terms of the promise. The Lord has just made Joshua a promise. Look at the terms. God will always stand by his promise. He'll always be held to his word. Look at the exact promise in verse 8. As Joshua is getting ready to go and enter into battle to be the deliverer for their newfound servants, the Gibeonites. Look at it carefully. Don't fear them. I've delivered them into your hand. Here comes the numerics of the promise. Not a man of them shall stand before you. As Joshua comes to be the Gibeonites' deliverer, he comes with the promise of God, with assurance from God that he's going to triumph. And this is what gives Joshua boldness and zeal, the promise of God. And this isn't the first time. I think this is the ninth time, if I'm counting right, in the book of Joshua that God has promised him good success and given him divine assurance. This deliverer, the lesser Joshua, this paint, fail, faint and pale foreshadowing of the greater Joshua, who will be the ultimate deliverer, this one comes with divine assurance that he will triumph. But he comes also with speed. Look at verse 9. Now I want you to notice the rapidness he comes with. We read, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Joshua doesn't shuffle or foot drag. So notice the mileage. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can look at that. But let me tell you what the mileage is that Joshua marches. He does a forced march from Gilgal to Gibeon, it's about 24 miles. Now this forced march is on an ascent, if you know anything of the topography of this part of Israel. And so Joshua goes, at night, uphill. This sounds like your parents, right? When they tell you, back in my day, we had to walk all the way to school, uphill both directions, 20 miles, and we didn't have shoes. That's what the people who fought with Joshua could say. Back in my day, we had to march overnight, 24 miles, in the dark, uphill. They march. If you look at a clock and a map, this has to be actually not a march, but an all-night jog. 24 miles, just two miles less than a marathon, but it's all uphill. Maybe you've watched the Olympics and watched the marathoners. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated from my couch, but I'm fascinated by them. My son James and I, we're, we've been amazed in the last couple of years when, for those of you who don't know this, 
Eliud Kipchoge from Kenya has now done something astounding. It's superhuman. He has now broken the two-hour mark for the marathon. Marathon's 26 miles and a little more than that. Two hours and less. And so whenever that happens, I usually reach in my bag of chips and I turn to Sandy and I say, I think that guy's in pretty good shape. Now, remind yourself of Joshua's soldiers. They run 24 miles uphill overnight. They're running a marathon to be able to get to the battle. You think they might be tired when they get there? Then they really have to fight. These are men. As I've said before, this is Israel's greatest generation. I stand in no fear of being counteracted because in every way, spiritually, physically, in every single way, this is Israel's greatest generation. Now, General Joshua, when the, when the request comes to him, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't send back word to the Gibeonites and say, we'll march two or three miles the first day, maybe three miles the second day. We'll be there in a week. He comes with speed. And he's doing this for strangers. He's doing this simply because he's made a covenant with them. Imagine what he would do for Israelites. But we can call on the greater Joshua. And we can say to him, come to us quickly. And this is where an acquaintance with the whole counsel of God is vital. Because we read and we say, isn't this neat that these people in covenant with Joshua, they could call on this great man to come to them with speed. My friends, that's a dim picture of the covenant privileges you have. You have the privilege to call out because you're in covenant with the greater Joshua. You can call out and say, Lord, come to me and make haste. You think I'm overstating the case? Look at Psalm 31 and see how the psalmist prays. In Psalm 31, the psalmist begins the psalm, O Lord, I put my trust Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. This is how God's people pray. Or look at Psalm 38, verse 21 and 22, where the psalmist writes, Psalm 38, 21 and 22, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And we could read, in fact, there's a whole section of the Psalter from Psalm 69 to Psalm 79 over and over again where the psalmist is asking the Lord Lord not only to intervene, but do so speedily. Do you ever pray this way? Lord, help quickly. Lord, Lord, come speedily. I need you to show up on on my behalf in this situation. If pagan Gibeonites can call on the lesser Joshua and say, come with speed. How much more can God's beloved children of the covenant call on the greater Joshua and say, Lord, make haste. Come be my deliverer. And so Joshua comes not only with divine assurance, he comes not only with great speed, he comes, and this is the best part, he comes with God's help. Look at the battle in verse 10. This is an astounding thing. I'm afraid that when we had the reading of the text a moment ago, you read right past it. Look at verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel. The Lord chased them. The Lord struck them down. 
You see the Lord in this text, in verse 10, girding up like a warrior, using divine weapons in his arsenal against these five kings. We see the Lord killing the Canaanites with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And the Lord is the one who chases them along the road. And here you have a, a general statement about the events of the day. The details are given in the following narrative. But the real point for our purpose is that God sovereignly helped Joshua and he hindered the Canaanites. By the way, look at verse 10. The word for routed in verse 10 is the Hebrew word which means he disturbed them. He confused them. He put them to flight. Now let me encourage you to mentally now, right now, take off your shoes because you're stepping onto holy ground. I want you to look with awe and reverence at the events of verses 11 through 14. First of all, when you look at the attack and the aid of Jehovah, I want to say something about the two miracles we see here. We're going to see two, and they are miracles. I try not to use that word loosely. See two formal miracles in verse 11 through 14. And what do I mean by a miracle? Let me be super clear. Because again, some folks just toss words around with no meaning and forethought. By a miracle, I mean this. A supernatural event brought about by a special act of God's providence, an extraordinary display of God's power. It's an event occurring in the natural world which can be seen and attributed only to the immediate intervention of God. It's different from his common or ordinary providence. Now, the vast majority of miracles in the Bible fall into one of two classes. Either they're supernatural judgments of God upon the wicked, such as the destruction of Sodom by fire from heaven in Genesis 19. Or they're the gracious and mighty acts by God on behalf of his people, such as the manna from heaven. There was a 40-year ongoing miracle. The parting of the Red Sea was both. It was an act of judgment upon the wicked and a gracious and mighty act by God on behalf of his people. The world, of course, remember those people who hate the church? who hate the word of God. The world scoffs at miracles. The world has no use for miracles and finds them laughable and attempts to, to place anything that's the least bit supernatural under the so-called laws of nature. The laws of nature, and I'm using laws of nature with huge scare quotes around that, are merely the means that God uses to run the universe that he's created. A few minutes ago, we read our public theology, Westminster Confessed, Confession of Faith, chapter 5, as our corporate confession of faith. We read these words, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, but he is free to work without, above, or against them at his pleasure. That's what our confession that we've confessed for 370 years, as Presbyterians says, about providence God isn't restricted to the laws of nature. He's the one who sets those laws. He's free to act above or outside of them, and he has done so. Look at these two miracles. The first of all, in verse 11. Look at the hailstones hurled down. This is miracle number one. Look at verse 11. We read, it happened as they fled before Israel. That is, the five nations. They're running now in full sprint away from the armies of Israel. It happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Bethlehem. That the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. 
there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. What is the miracle? We see God taking massive hailstones, boulder-sized hailstones, out of his heavenly treasury and hurling them down as weapons. Jehovah is seen to be a warrior, one who pursues and smites his enemies. He is the one actively throwing down weapons against his enemies. Now, I want you to see how Scripture talks about what the world would call natural elements. They're not natural at all. Scripture speaks more about this, this phenomena of hailstones. Look at Job 38, and I want you to see a much older text. Of course, you know that most biblical scholars say that Job is the oldest book in the canon of Scripture. And this would have been in Israel's canon of Scripture. They had, at this point in time, they had six books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Job. They knew about God's weapons, his hailstones. <clears throat> so look at Job 38. <clears throat> God is finally answering Job. Job's been asking why over and over again. And basically the Lord's response to Job is, who are you to question me? What do you know? And Jehovah asked Job a series of questions. Look at the Lord's question in Job 38, 22. Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? And so when Israel sees this happening, they're saying, huh, it's Job 38, 22. God has reserved this treasury of hailstone, and today is the day. Today is the day that we get to see him unlock the doors and begin to pour out his weapons against his enemies. The picture that God gives Job is there's this massive treasury stored up that he reaches in and takes out hailstones as elements of war. He has them there reserved, waiting for just a day, such as this text. Most believers have lost any concept of the Lord fighting for them. They've been shown an image of a soft, effeminate, sentimental God and a Jesus who's prissy. So the God shown to us in Joshua 10 is a stranger to many. But let me remind you who the God of the Bible is. He's a warrior, especially when he protects his people. Look back to Exodus 15, and I want you to see this and be reminded, if you came here tonight and you're afflicted with a pocket-sized Jesus, a pacifist Jesus, look back to Exodus 15, and I want you to notice how God is characterized. After God destroys the nation of Egypt, the mightiest army on the planet drowns them in the Red Sea, he gives a song to Israel. And you know what the song is? It's not we are the world. It's not something sentimental. Look at Exodus 15, the first three verses. This is a praise song to God for being a warrior. Israel sings, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. He's my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. God is not a pacifist. God is a warrior when his people are threatened. 
Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 24. The Lord, by the way, is not ashamed to say he's a warrior on behalf of his people. The psalmist writes in Psalm 24, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Some of you are saying, I hear you, Carl. You're talking about God as a warrior, and I hear you. But Carl, I think this is just strictly an Old Testament idea, and I know my dispensations, and this is all old dispensation of law, and this is Old Testament stuff. But you know, the New Testament introduces a different God, a kinder, gentler God. He's changed. God is reformed. He's not that way anymore. He doesn't fight on behalf of his people. He doesn't conquer his and our enemies. Look at Revelation 19. This is our New Testament reading a moment ago. What is the picture of Christ that brings joy to the believer? In Revelation 19, as the nations are in rebellion against God, who is the one who shows up on the scene to crush the rebellious, lawless nations? It's none other than Jesus Christ clothed for war. In Revelation 19, you have that picture. I just read it a moment ago. And you see Jesus on a white battle horse. And his army is with him. He's a man of war. And it closes in verse 6 where there can be no mistaking who this figure is. For we are told in Revelation 19.6, on his robe, on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We need such a God to give us hope for we are no match for our enemies. The powers of darkness, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are always fighting a three-front war. Tomorrow, when you get out of bed, you'll be fighting against the world and the devil, and then that fiercest of all enemies, your own flesh. You need a God who's a warrior to help you resist. We need to see the same God who's pictured in Joshua 10, who shows up and rains down hailstones on his and our enemies, that this same God will fight for us today. Look at the second miracle in Joshua 10. Not only does Jehovah hurl down hailstones, then he does a miracle that fools will scoff at until the day Christ returns. Just as they'll scoff at the parting of the Red Sea, just as they'll scoff at the resurrection of Christ, the unbelieving mind hates God's supernatural intervention in miracles and wants to always explain it away by natural forces. But what you have listed in verses 12 through 14, look at it there, is the miracle of the longest day. Because scoffers don't know the power of God. Now remember, we are told in Matthew chapter 8, even the wind and the waves obey him. Lost men don't understand this basic principle. Creation is just a tool in God's hands hands. Creation is not an independent authoritative thing. It's a tool in the hands of its creator. God is not bound by creation. He's outside of creation, superintending it, upholding it for his glory and the good of his people. And I want you to notice Joshua's amazing zeal and faith. Look at his faith in verse 12. He asks God to do something profound. He spoke to the Lord. He cries out. He's praying and notice what he's saying. He's asking God to make the sun stand still in verse 12. Why? Because Joshua believes the promise of God. Look back to verse 8. 
Joshua praised that in faith because of God's promise there in verse 8. What did God promise to do? God had said, not a man of them shall stand before you. And so here's Joshua. He puts two and two together. The sun's getting ready to go down. And so Joshua says, Lord, you promised that not a one of them is going to stand before us on this day. The sun's going down. I guess you're going to have to make more daylight because they're getting away. We need a longer day. He's saying, Lord, we need more daylight to fulfill your promise. Your promise even trumps the laws of creation. And so if your promise is in danger, make the sun stand still so that your promise can be fulfilled. But not only is he a man of faith, believing God's promise, this is where the astounding zeal of Joshua can be seen. Not just faith, but zeal. This is a man who has, let me remind you, he's marched all night. He's marched 24 miles uphill. And now he's been fighting all day, and he's 82 years old. Remember, he's been on AARP's list for 30 years. Yet instead of taking a break, he asked, this is his incredible zeal, <clears throat> he asked for more daylight so that he can complete the task. This is a man who believes in perseverance of the saints. He's a Calvinist. He says, Lord, give me more light. I've got to finish the job. He understands how important it is to persevere in obedience. He says, Lord, keep the sun up until we've done exactly what you commanded and promised. He doesn't beg off and say, Lord, I'm really feeling it in my bones. Lord, have I told you lately that I'm 82? I didn't have my Geritol before I left the camp. He says, Lord, give me more daylight so that we can finish the task. The text, look at verses 12 through 14 very simply teaches us that God controls his creation for his own glory. And by the way, if you think that this astounding that the Lord made the sun stand still, you'll be more astounded when you come to Isaiah 38 when the Lord makes the sun go backwards. Don't be surprised. Our God controls all the elements of creation for his own glory. But this isn't the end of the story for us. Scripture is given for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And so we need to ask specifically, what are we to learn from this account? Let me make three applications. The first, although Joshua was assured of victory from the beginning, look at the promise in verse 8. Joshua had the promise of victory from the beginning. He doesn't become careless or slothful. He uses the means he calls all the army to go with him, according to verse 7. And they march all night. They jog all night. And we say this, and we say it repeatedly, and we keep saying it. Has God told us that we'll be victorious, that the cause of Christ will triumph in this world? Yes. Has God told us that we will be holy? Yes. So does that mean we don't have to be busy evangelizing or mortifying the flesh? No. That means since God has given us the promise... We must use all the means at our disposal to see the fulfillment of the promise. Joshua doesn't just rest on his laurels in verse 8 and say, God's promise will win, so let's take our time and we'll get up there in a couple of weeks. No, he runs to obey God's command because God has given him assurance. So we should be. We should be running out into the fields that are white unto harvest and say, God has told us he'll give us the nations for our inheritance. So let's get busy and evangelize. God has told us that we'll be holy. 
And so let's get busy chopping off right hands and mortifying the flesh using the means. The second application. Happier are those who are in covenant with the greater Joshua, who have him to fight their battles for them. Do you see Christ as the one who fights your battles for you? Do you call on him and say, make haste to come and help me? Conversely, how wretched and miserable are those who plot against the greater Joshua, who conspire against him, who war against him. Do you have tonight great joy that you have Christ, the greater Joshua, to fight your battles for you? A third application. Let me say this very straightforwardly because we need to be reminded again and again and again. The God you see in verse 10, look at him there. The God who hurls down hailstones. The God who can make the sun stand still. This is our God. We don't have a pocket-sized Jesus. We have a great God. Our God is the one who controls the elements. Our God is the one who controls and conquers death. Nothing is too hard for him. And so if you've been worshiping a God who's basically an idol, a God who you are always saying, well, he couldn't do that, he wouldn't do that, to not repent. Trust the God of the Bible, the one who's revealed on the pages of Scripture. Bow the knee at his throne. Banish all your doubts and fears. Believe his promises and trust his son. Let's pray. Our God, indeed, you're a great God, not like the false gods of the pagan world, but you're the true and living God, the one who speaks and solar systems come into existence, the one who stores up hailstones to rain down on your enemies, the one who blinds the eyes of those who oppose you. But yet, Lord, you're the one who blesses your children with every blessing in Christ. You even have the power to give them new bodies and new hearts and to raise them up on the last day and to sustain them forever in covenant with you. Lord, tonight, strengthen our trust and our faith. Loosen our tongues so that we might be quick to call on you to make haste to help us. And give us faith that we might believe your word in every one of its details.